Uh, so let's turn to John chapter 12. This morning we are looking at verses 27 through 50, which is the end of the chapter. So keep in mind, when we're reading this, we're about a, less than a week out from the crucifixion. I mean, even though we still have a long way to go in John's gospel before we get to the crucifixion, this last half of John's gospel takes just a few days. So John really slows down. This last week of Christ's earthly life takes this last half of John's gospel. So let's finish out chapter 12 this morning in verse 27. It says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word is at work already in our hearts. 
I pray that we would uh, be in all of you this morning. That you would lay down your life for us. People who have rebelled and continue to rebel, that you'd be willing to lay down your life, make much of your Father so that we can be in relationship with God. Lord, give us the ears to hear. May we not be blind this morning. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So John's gospel, it's, it's unique in that it really highlights the incarnation. Incarnation meaning Jesus, fully God, fully man. So in this last section of chapter 12, we see how being fully man and fully God, they, they, they kind of come to a head. They, they create some tension here for Jesus. In verse 27, Jesus says, that his soul is troubled. Now, I find this extremely comforting, that Jesus being fully God, that he, here he's, he's troubled. He's perfect in every way, and here it, he's experiencing a time of trouble. Now, this is not a troubled situation like trying to pay a bill when finances are tight. This is trouble from within. His spirit is troubled. Something is bothering Jesus Something is weighing him down. The point is, Jesus understands your sorrows, for he was a man of sorrow. I, I, I love thinking about this, that, that Jesus, he was troubled. When you're troubled, he's going, I, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be troubled. Isn't that amazing that we have a God that can know that about us? And look at what he does. He gives us a model for what we should do when our spirit is troubled. The very first thing he does is he prays. Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. In times of trouble, we should bring our sorrows to him. Now, it's interesting that Jesus asked to be saved from this hour. Usually when we hear the word saved in the context of Scripture, we're typically talking about salvation, someone being saved from their sin. But Jesus doesn't need to be saved from his sin because he has no sin. He's not asking to be saved from sin, but saved from this hour. But what hour is he talking about? You know, some of you parents, you may pray this prayer when you're trying to put kids to bed at night. Lord, save me from this hour. <laughs> the hour that Jesus is referring to is not a specific hour of the day. But it's a reference to his physical and spiritual suffering before and during the crucifixion. Jesus is saying that in his humanity, if it is possible, he would like to be excused from the suffering. It's important for us to remember that, that Jesus was a real man with real emotions, with real feelings, the ability to experience pain. And what he was about to experience would be unlike any suffering that anyone in the world has ever known. And Jesus knew that this hour was coming. He speaks about being lifted up. And when he says lifted up, I think there's two things he has in mind. First, being lifted up is a way of speaking about glorifying someone or making much of someone. So, for example, if I wanted to lift up the names of the volunteers of the kids' ministry, like you guys, like I'm so thankful for you. Like there's so many of you and you volunteer and you, it continues. There's so many kids and there's more kids and babies and I'm just so thankful for the nursery workers. 
pre-K elementary class. So I just want to say thank you. I think you guys are amazing. So lifting up means to make much of, to glorify something. Secondly, being lifted up here is a reference to being physically lifted up on a cross. That in less than a week from these events, Jesus would be nailed to a cross. He would physically die of suffocation. Crucifixion is a painful, embarrassing way to die. So he, he knew that was coming. But many theologians have commented when referring to the cross that the more severe pain would have been the spiritual suffering that Jesus faced rather than the physical or mental suffering that most of us think of when we think about the cross. So Jesus asked to be spared from this moment. But then notice he says, but. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Essentially, Jesus is saying, your will be done. Later in John's gospel, we'll get to see this beautiful prayer from Jesus. And so here you begin to see, you know, this your will be done mindset. Father, glorify your name. Jesus lists two reasons why he's willing to endure this suffering. First, he says this was his purpose. This is why I came. The child in the manger was born to die. Jesus left his throne, became a man, so he could die, be the sacrifice, the atonement for all mankind. The second reason Jesus gives here is to glorify the Father. Do you remember when Jesus was born, the, the angels, as multitude of angels appeared to the shepherds, multitude of angels, they said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God, peace to man. The angels are sent to make everything and um, just very clear that the Son of God has come into his creation to display the glory of God, to reconcile people from wrath, to have peace with God. As one pastor said, to make God look great in salvation and to make man glad in God. That's what happens here at the Incarnation. It's crazy to imagine that Jesus' death on the cross in weakness and shame would be the moment of God's glory. It's just not how we think that when we see suffering, our hearts are full of compassion and we want to remove it. Here, this is where God has made much of. Jesus goes to the cross in order to make much of his Father. He knew how much his Father loved his creation. But because of the hostility between God and sinful man, man was not in right fellowship with God. So the cross is a necessary means for peace between God and man. Jesus was willing to go through suffering and pain so that the world could be in right relationship with their creator. And when we see something rare and astonishing in the second half of verse 28, it says, Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Hear this theophany. This is an audible manifestation of God through thunder. Now, it's possible that John here, he, he could be telling us back to the Exodus account. Chapter 19, when Moses is on the mount, he's on Mount Sinai, and God speaks through thunder. So this could be a, 
kind of tying back that Jesus is a greater Moses. Jesus continues, verse 31, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So there's this reference here to the ruler of the world. And this is a reference to Satan, which might sound strange. Why is Satan called the ruler of the world? Well, if the death of Jesus had cast out the ruler of this world, why then do we see so much suffering and evil in the world today? You know what I mean? Like, if he cast out the ruler of this world, if he cast out Satan, why do we see so much evil? It's important to remember that Jesus' death on the cross was not the final defeat of Satan. This is why we can still see the presence of Satan all around us. The final defeat of Satan can be found in Revelation 20. This is where he is bound forever. But the cross was a defeat that secured and guaranteed his final defeat. Now, that's why, like, we as Christians, we can speak with confidence that Satan has, past tense, been defeated. And at the same time, we know that Satan and his demons are still out on the prowl. We see this type of language all throughout the New Testament. Um, Ephesians 6, Paul writes this, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Notice the tense of this sentence. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So you see, stand and wrestle are both present tense. The ruler of this world has been defeated, but he is still prowling around trying to devour whoever he can before it is too late. I'm not sure how many of you went to the Marshall game yesterday, but at one point we were up, we, I say we, I, you know, I didn't play, but we, we were up 55 to 3. That, that's crazy. And this is in the third quarter, 55 to 3. When, let's say when there's two minutes left in the game, it would have been impossible for Norfolk to, to come back, right? I mean, it's 55 to 3, two minutes ago. You could kind of milk the clock, run it out. But have they been defeated? Not, not really. You know, you just play the game. You got to play to the, you know, that final seconds off. They, they hadn't technically lost yet. But I bet if you looked at the Marshall bench at that point, you probably saw all the players laughing, kind of joking around. And at this point, the starters are out of the game. The subs are in the game. The starters are kind of just goofing off, laughing, enjoying themselves, right? You would have seen this face on them that would have looked like they had already won, past tense. Yet the game was still being played. This is how we should respond. You know, we can speak of having victory. The victory is ours through faith in Christ. This is why John said in Revelation 12 that they have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb. As Jesus dies on the cross, we can see the judgment and anger of God for our sin 
fall upon Jesus. The judgment Jesus takes brings freedom from judgment for those who believe in him. The only thing that Satan can hold over you is the fact that God should punish you for your sin. But once the price for our sin has been paid in full on the cross, Satan has even lost that hold over you. So you can walk around with confidence, with a boldness that you have victory. Satan is left powerless by the cross. Paul explains this idea of Satan being left powerless in Colossians. Colossians 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So you, if you are in Christ this morning, you have victory. You win. That's why we should have, we should be the happiest, most joyful people in the world. There's no way the Marshall football team should have more joy winning a football game than we should having victory over our enemy. D.A. Carson writes, the instrument by which Satan designed to defeat um, the feet of Jesus became the means for the overthrow of his own power. You can imagine Satan in that moment thinking like, oh, I got him, finally. And a few days later, he's like, is not good. And notice back in our passage in verse 32 that the cross would make a global impact. Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When Jesus is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. In this verse, there's a great promise for missions. As Jesus is lifted up on the cross, Jesus will be able to draw people from all nations to himself. This is why we must go. Even to a people who live on a small island in the Pacific Ocean, and let's be honest, how many of you ever heard of Nauru before this morning? I'm sure there's somebody, like not even the geography, like there's no hand that I see. Oh, one, Kate. Well done, Kate. Even the people on a small island in the Pacific Ocean with less population than the campus of Marshall, Jesus will draw even those people to himself. Christ's definitive language here should embolden us to share the gospel. Jesus makes a promise that he will draw all people groups to himself. The crowd understood what Jesus meant by being lifted up. And this caused some confusion for them. Look at verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ 
he remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The Son of Man, is, is, it's a reference from the book of Daniel. All these Jews would have been familiar with this title, Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Okay, this is the title. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, notice this language, look how similar it is, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. So this is why they were confused. How can he talk about being lifted up? The Son of Man, his dominion is going to last forever. This dominion, it shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So the Jews, they couldn't quite reconcile Jesus being the Son of Man and also being lifted up. Essentially, they couldn't understand how the Son of Man of Daniel 7 could also be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. They didn't quite understand in his first advent, in his first coming, he comes as the suffering servant. And in his second advent, he appears as the son of man, the kingdom that lasts forever. I love how one commentary describes this section. The author writes, this section ends with an invitation from King Jesus. Our king is not barricaded in the castle cold and distant from his lowly subjects. He's not your typical king. As Jesus heads to the cross, on his way to die, he turns to invite us to come to him and receive the blessings his death will bring. He begs us to believe in the light, to become sons and daughters of the light. Listen to the words of Jesus. He invites you to come out of the darkness of sin and death and come to the light. Jesus offers you a home and an inheritance, a seat at God's royal table, an entrance into the kingdom of love and grace. It's beautiful. But in verse 37 and following, this shows us that not everyone will respond to this invitation. There's some that it, they hear and just they just won't respond. Verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of these authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, this is a really challenging, weighty, heady section. John quotes two passages from Isaiah. The former is from Isaiah 53. The latter is Isaiah 6. 
In verse 37, John says that though Jesus had done so many signs before them, and if you've been coming for weeks and from the beginning of John's gospel, you've seen all these signs. Sign after sign. And they still did not believe in him. So where does this responsibility of unbelief fall in verse 37? In verse 37, the unbelief falls on them. They still did not believe in him. But then in verse 38, John connects the reason why they did not believe to a fulfillment in the book of Isaiah. And look where the ownership of their unbelief falls in verse 39. In verse 39 it says, Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. In Isaiah 6, the Lord informs the prophet that there's going to be this period where people will not be able to see. And this is something that John has kept in front of the reader in almost every chapter. I mean, how many times have we heard John talking about how people walk in the darkness? You know, they're blind. They cannot see. They're in the dark. Or another way John says it, they are in unbelief. When understanding unbelief, one pastor writes this. He says, unbelief never involves the mind alone. It is a spiritual state. Unbelief is the rebellious response of man's heart. No amount of external pressure or coercion can ever make a person believe. You, you've experienced that probably, right? You, you've shared the gospel. You're like, man, like, this is going to be a great argument. I know I've got him right here. I've, I've read the case for Christ. I'm going to use this. And it just doesn't work. You cannot coerce someone to believe. He goes on to say, that's why Christianity is not a religion that spreads by the sword. We could make people utter some form of confession, which I pray no parent does that to their child. But forced profession would be worthless, powerless, and empty. Unbelief stems from the heart of man. Unbelief, it's a spiritual condition. This is basically the same pattern you see in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is one of the most profound chapters in all of Scripture. In Romans chapter 1, and just read chapter 1, this, the latter half of chapter 1, maybe this afternoon, and think about our culture. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Notice that they knew God. They believed God, but they did not honor God. 
They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is exactly what John is describing in verse 42. Back in our passage, verse 42, nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him. They knew God, Romans 1, language, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They exchanged worshiping God for worshiping the creature. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. These authorities, just like the blind man's parents in chapter 9, if you remember that, they were afraid of being removed from the synagogue. And this fear exposes their hearts. See, in their hearts, who did they believe was their provider? It was the Pharisees. It was the status of the synagogue. That's where they placed their belief. They trusted in man more than they trusted in God. But then Jesus still extends an invitation to them. This is grace upon grace upon grace. Look down in your Bibles at verse 44 as Jesus continues to invite them to come. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Notice how closely Jesus ties himself to God the Father here. This is incredible. In verse 44, Jesus says to believe in him is to believe in God. In verse 45, to see Jesus is to see the Father. In verse 49, to listen to Jesus is to listen to to God. John forces us again to make a, a decision of who is this Jesus? Is he Lord? Is he really God in the flesh? Or is he some lunatic who truly believes that he's God? Or is he a liar? Is he just trying to deceive all these good-hearted Jews in order to create a following? Because Jesus is fully God, he can speak on behalf of God. And being God, in verse 46, he extends an invitation to this large crowd. Jesus says, I have come into this world as light, so whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is the God of second chances. These are people who have rejected him. Some of them have shown hostility towards him. 
And he still extends an invitation to them. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you begrudgingly came because friends, family member keeps pestering you to come. You've rejected God many times. But maybe you've kind of heard something this morning. It's kind of something going on inside you, and you're like, I don't know what's happening. Maybe Jesus is inviting you right now to, to trust in him. He's extending an invitation for you to repent, to confess your sin, to make him Lord of your life. But in verse 47, it appears that even those who have rejected Jesus, they have no reason to worry. Did you, did you notice that in verse 47? If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And that's a great verse for our culture today, isn't it? You know, I think the phrase in our culture today is, you know, you do you. To each his own. Jesus says, hey, I'm not... I didn't come to judge you guys. I just came to save the world. That's great news. Sounds like we don't even have to keep his word, and he's not going to judge us. Well, thankfully, this is why we keep Scripture in context. And verse 48, the very next verse, resolves any confusion the reader may have about Jesus judging or not judging mankind. Verse 48 says... The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. What's the judge? Jesus says, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So Jesus is saying that he doesn't have to judge man because his words will do the judging for him. And this is consistent with other parts of New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes this. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. Jesus will judge the living and the dead, and the only thing that he will examine is what you thought of him. Not how much good you've done, not how many times you've come to church, not what grades you made, not what job you had, not what clothes you wear, not how much you've given away, but have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? Have you confessed your sin? Stop being God yourself. And you said, Jesus, you are God. That's all that's going to matter. Is he the Lord of your life? Have you embraced his gospel? Sinclair Ferguson writes this. He says, the cross is at the heart of the gospel. It makes the gospel good news. Christ died for us. He has stood in our place before God's judgment seat. He has borne our sins. God has done something on the cross which we could never do for ourselves. This morning we have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is a picture of the death of Christ. We get to look at the table this morning and examine and remember and reflect on what it took for us to have right relationship with God. His body, which 
is represented by the bread. It was broken. He suffered where we should have suffered. The other cup has um, the juice, which represents his blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So this morning, if you are a guest with us, we invite you, if you are a follower of Christ, we invite you, you're, you're um, able to come and participate in the Lord's Supper. You want to be a member of this church to take part of this um, part of the service. But there's two stations. You'll see two cups stacked together. You just take them both. The bottom cup will have the bread. The top cup will have the juice. And whenever you are ready, you come and reflect on what it took for you to have peace with God. It took God coming, leaving his throne, becoming a man, living a perfect life, dying on the cross where we should have died. He rose from the dead, ascended back to heaven, which is where he still now rules and reigns, and he's waiting to return. So we're in this kind of middle place. We're waiting for that day where he comes back to get us. So until that day, he commands us to take of the Lord's Supper as we meet together, reflect. So whenever you are ready, you come and take of the Lord's Supper. Let's, uh, let's come from the outside just for, for uh, spacing, come back in the middle.